Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Mark Dankford, the co-founder and executive chairman of Viasat. Viasat is a $3.8 billion market cap company that provides broadband and communication products and services worldwide. Viasat started off as a defense-oriented company, but has since layered on consumer and business-facing offerings by developing the world's leading high-throughput geostationary satellites. Over the next two years, Viasat will be launching three new satellites that will give the company the ability to offer global coverage to its military and in-flight Wi-Fi customers. Additionally, Viasat is rolling out community Wi-Fi initiatives to help people in emerging and frontier markets connect to the internet for the first time. All of this is happening while the company is facing a growing threat from low Earth orbit satellite providers such as Elon Musk's Starlink. Given how much is going on and the fact that Mark recently went from being the CEO to assume the executive chairman role, I thought it would be a perfect time to talk to him about the following topics. The future of the global satellite broadband industry, including competition with Starlink, what the U.S. military needs now from Viasat and how that may evolve over time, the cultural differences between the defense and commercial sides of the company, and how Viasat can benefit from all of the space-related activity going on right now. Before we begin, just a few disclosures to note. First, Cove Street owns Viasat shares. Second, Cove Street has done a number of podcasts and interviews specifically on our position in Viasat. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Viasat co-founder and executive chairman, Mark Denkberg. As always, we will start this interview at a pivotal moment in the company's history. Viasat has a big moment every time a new satellite launches. But for me, the biggest change came with the purchase of Wild Blue in 2009. And unless And unless an investor goes back far enough into the company's history, he or she wouldn't understand that this company started in government and defense. And only really starting with the Wild Blue deal has Viasat become more of a consumer and business-focused company. So what was the initial impetus for wanting to have a direct relationship with end customers? And what has that insight provided to the company as a whole? Well, the the main reason for going direct to customers was to understand them and to make sure that our value proposition was delivered to the customers as intended. And uh, you can end up, when you go through intermediaries, where the intermediaries have 
uh, you know, they have their own perspective and it's not necessarily the same as the customers. And a lot of time what they're trying to do is optimize around their own economics as opposed to the, the customers. And so we were in a position where the main innovation that, that we felt the market wanted uh, was was way more bandwidth for the money. It was it was just that was pretty simple. And the intermediaries that we were going through were focused on other things that that uh, might you know might bear on eventually, but didn't really address the main thing. So that that's how we got into it. And we you know we had this discussion with them that was hey, here's what your customers want. So here's how we can make what you want. And uh, and they didn't want that. <laughs> It just didn't want it, you know. They, they had other, they had other things, and we go. So we were pretty convinced that that was what the market wanted, and uh, so we, you know, that's how we started on Biosat One. Was it was really about being able to deliver a lot more bandwidth per dollar for for customers, and and then to be able to ensure that that value proposition actually made it to the customers to the market. So as you were a company that went through intermediaries. I mean, there's a certain culture associated with that. Can you talk about how the culture um, and the sales organization and even technology has had to evolve as you've been, you know, as you've developed those direct relationships with the customers? Yeah. So, well, you know, one of the most, I, I think one of the most important things, and I remember this pretty distinctly at the company was we had, uh, let's say, let's say we're working through a company and, and we eventually acquired Wild Blue. But we were working through them, and and for a lot of our employees, they were the customer. Right? Hey, what does the customer want? And and in their case, it was well, we want lower cost end user equipment. That's the big thing. And well, no, we think what your customers really want because they don't see that. What they really want is more bandwidth. And so internally, we had this sort of conflict, which is, hey, are we going to work towards what our customer wants, or are we going to work towards something else? And, and I think the main, the main point, insight was, you know, if you're going through distribution, there's this concept of sell-through, right? Is that your distributor is really a proxy for the end market, but they're not the end market, right? So if there ends up being a divergence between your distribution and what the market wants, doing what the distribution wants is not a good strategy, right? That, that even though the market is not your direct customer, they really determine what's going to be successful or not. And so it, you know, for us, actually, ironically, kind of the way we got that, that, that orientation was from being in the defense business, where in the defense business, you're always working through acquisition organizations. But one of the things we learned fairly early on was what a big, big divergence there was between the acquisition organizations and the end user organizations and how to, you know, how to both recognize those things and, and to deal with them. All right. That makes sense. And, and I'm interested in the sales organization side of that. So when you're selling through an intermediary, you know, there's a, there's a certain sales culture and then, but when you're, when you're really focused on an end consumer, like that's a different sales culture. So I'm interested, like how you've thought about developing that uh, sales organization on top of, of what you just described. Yeah. And that's been, you know, it's been a journey, uh, partly because the selling mechanisms are, are evolving as well. So, uh, one of the things, you know, one of the things that that we got when we acquired Wild Blue was a sales organization, a consumer-facing sales organization, and they had uh, they had two main components. One was wholesale, 
where they would sell through organizations like DirecTV or Dish or AT&T. And then they had a retail organization that would basically had a few things, some, some direct customer call centers, third-party call centers. And we, you know, because we hadn't been in the consumer business, we were really oriented towards the wholesale ones. Because think of that as sort of was more at scale, more like what we're used to. But like the first thing, the first thing that happened was we ended up with uh, divergence between the wholesalers and ourselves. So going back to this whole thing about speed and speed and value, uh, you know, what, one of the things is that each of these other organizations were selling DSL. And so what they would say is, okay, well, look, we have, we have a DSL product. We have a DSL price point. What we'd like, all we really want is a, a much lower price point. So make us a service at a low price point. And we would say, well, you know, that's, that's kind of hard. What we can do is we can make a service at the same price point, but a way better value. And they'd say, oh, well, I'm not sure we need that, <laughs> right? Because they can't, they can't adjust. We, we really want these two different value propositions. And it was pretty clear that, again, they were really looking for their portfolio as opposed to just you know, what was going to be the best for the customer. So one of the ways we resolved that was we said, okay, we'll make the product you want, but because we have a retail arm, we can make the product that we think the market wants. Right. And, and we're happy to make you, here, here's the one that wholesale distribution wants, here's the one that our retail uh, arm thinks. And the response they got back was, well, if you, sell that, if you sell that, we can't sell your other one because yours is a better value. And we said, well, yes, exactly. That's the point, right? So, so, it was a, so it was, what that did is, it, again, it really highlighted this issue about the challenges in delivering uh, a, a specific value proposition through distribution to a customer. And so that was really eye-opening for us about the value of having a retail distribution uh, arm, even if it wasn't necessarily going to be the highest volume one, right? Because some of these other distribution channels, you know, Dish and DirecTV at the time, they, they could handle very, very high volumes. But what we really got was a way to sort of gauge what the market wanted and to help those, those distribution arms deliver a, a service that, that I think was, was more in demand. And since then, you know, these there are these these issues sort of crop up all the time. They're just natural. It's like hey, once once somebody gets into some form of distribution, they'll have incentives that diverge a little bit from from yours. And so, what's really important is just to understand what those are. Try to find win win solutions. But in general, what it's driven us towards is more and more direct interaction with the customers, so that we can really gauge what's important to the market. And then you know reduce friction and, and deliver that value proposition. So so now you know we're really on a, a lot of things that others that are doing you know online retail are doing, which is more personalization of offers, um, more uh, kind of uh, more data driven segmentation of the market, not just by things like demographics, but by the exact context of, their, of a particular customer and trying to tailor products more and more specifically to them. And that's still, that's still a work in progress.
And we'll talk a lot more about that price versus value um, equation as we as we talk about the newer satellites as well. But I, so after buying Wild Blue in 2009, the company went on to launch Biosat One in 2011, Biosat Two in 2017. So I'm, I'm interested in what in the ways what have you taken that worked well in Biosat One and Viasat 2 that has paved the way for the newest constellation, which is Viasat 3, which we'll be launching over the next couple of years. What have you learned, you know, from both a technological perspective and again, you know, from a uh, ability to actually sell bandwidth perspective? Okay, so what, one thing that I think is really important is, is, is you know, you wanna have a strategy. <laughs> you, want, you wanna have some sense of what you're doing and, and, and it's really good if you can reduce that to math, right? That if you can, if you can sort of uh, bound and estimate and predict what's going to happen. And so the things that we were looking for, for instance, when we, when, so remember Wild Blue had a satellite that was seven gigabits per second. They spent close to $300 million on that. With Viasat 1, we got like 100 gigabits per second for roughly the same thing. So same amount of capital. So really the test was, and we thought this was, going to be the obvious outcome was, wow, this should be a way better, way better value for customers. And, and the theory was not that we would have 10 times the customers at the same value proposition. It's that we would give the customers a better value proposition and have maybe two times the customers or something like that. So one, so then the question was, okay, how can we tell if this is working? And we looked at things like what the demand was, what the what the rate of adoption was. And we had, we had to work through some things like, you know, the rate of which we, could, which we could do installations because that turned out to be a bottleneck. We had to do some work around that. And there was math around figuring out installation procedures, but we got through all that stuff. And, and one of the things we did is we looked around geographically to see where our customers were. And one of the things that we learned that was really important was that our customers were in, more dense areas. Think of it like so. If you th think of the model, the the model for uh, for Wild Blue was sort of they call them as like sprinkles and donuts. Is that if you went around a metro area, what you would see sort of in the outer loop, in the in the farthest highways around that metro area, that's where customers would tend to be clustered, and then there'd be some sprinkled within. But what we found was, as we increased our value proposition, that is. Instead of one megabit a second, we could do 10 or 12, and, and we could give people more bandwidth. We found that those customers, that the distribution of them skewed more towards the, the center of those metro areas. And it was, it was very noticeable. And the, the, but the other thing you found is that, which is again pretty predictable, is over time between Viasat 1 and Viasat 2, you know, that, that value proposition grew stale in some ways. And, and re really what that was because of two things. One was the amount of bandwidth that would, that would seem like a lot to a customer evolved over that time because the bandwidth demand was growing. And then also think of it as the alternative value propositions that were available to customers were improving generally from metro centers on out, right? Because that's those, G, those terrestrial ones, their value proposition depended a lot on geographic density. So what we could see was hey, that, that this is, you know, it's not a point solution. It's like a, it's a, 
it's an evolution, right? Is that what you have to do is predict several trends. Well, what are the trends at which we can improve our productivity? What are the trends in which bandwidth demands? What do bands increase? What are the trends in which alternative uh, value propositions improve? And the, sort of the intersection among all those three trends would give us a good sense of how competitive our offer would be and where. And uh, so with Viasat 2, one of the things we did is we were very focused on improving productivity, that is getting a lot more bandwidth for the same uh, for the same amount of capital. And then the other big thing was this, this geographic thing, because what we were finding before, and, and this has always been the case, is still is the case in, in, in uh, wireless transmission of any kind, is that in the places where there was high demand, there was a lot more demand than bandwidth. And in the places where there was low demand, we had too much bandwidth and not enough demand. And so you'd end up, you'd end up discounting in some way. I think of it as, okay, the, the market value of the bandwidth in those two markets is different. And so you'd have to adjust to that. So it became really evident to us that one of the really valuable things was being able to move the bandwidth to where the demand was. And then the other thing that happened during that time interval between Viasat 1 and Viasat 2 is we were able to, you know, we had expected that we'd be really effective in the in-flight market because compared to the satellites that are being used for the in-flight market, we could offer a really good value proposition. So we did. And one of the things you learned in the, in the mobility market was, wow, there's geographic variations in demand there as well, right? Because of where the main airports were located. So that was the big push on Viasat 2. Uh, we wanted to learn how to do that technically. And then we also wanted to find that, yeah, that, that that hypothesis was correct, and and it was, uh, um, and and so that reinforced kind of what we're doing on Viasat three uh, as well. And now a quick word about our sponsor. Before we started using the Tegas platform in 2017, Coast Street rarely used expert networks to find high value sources to help us better understand the companies we follow. The competitors' offerings were expensive and limited. Tegas changed that dynamic through their innovative business model, allowing firms like ours with a more limited research budget to conduct expert calls at a fraction of the price of others. Tegas then records, transcribes, anonymizes, and posts a transcript to their platform for subscribers to learn from. Every new Tegas customer makes the platform stronger through deeper and richer transcripts, and I've personally seen the growth over the past four years. The Tegas network of experts and platform of previous calls has made the service an indispensable part of our investment process. In fact, we now use the word Tegas as a verb. If you haven't tried Tegas before, I highly recommend going to tegas.co for a free trial and to start Tegasing your research. I, you know, what's really interesting to me is, is as I think about the move from, you talk about math being so important and the, the, the value proposition of, of, of providing the bandwidth. I'm interested to hear how you went from this, the idea for Viasat One looks really good on paper, given what we know about demand towards, we're actually going to build this thing and compete with existing satellites like that. I mean, that, I mean, I, the, the, for this company, we could have found a, a bunch of different pivotal moments, but I, I'm interested in that, like go or no go decision. What, what puts you over to say, we're going to try to develop our own high throughput satellite versus, um, you know, continuing to, you know, uh, you know, purchase other people's old satellites or something like that. Yeah, so that was that was probably the biggest pivot point in the, in the company's history. And we, you know, 
it, it may have looked sudden, but it took us several years to, 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 be able to come to that conclusion because it was such a big change. And, you know, the, uh, and the, the biggest change for the company was that we were a capital light company. I mean, the whole company had been built on the value proposition of outsourcing everything that was capital intensive. And one of the things, you know, one of the things that people ask now uh, about, well, well, when are you going to be free cash flow positive? We were very free cash flow positive before we did this. And we were very aware of what the implications were. But, but uh, what, it, what was going on was we, we, you know, we've been profitable. We've been profitable virtually every year, you know, since, since the company's run. And so, so one thing that, that had happened was we had accumulated probably $150 million and we we're generating a bunch of cash. So we had a lot of money in the bank. Uh, we were generating a bunch of cash. And so one thing that, that happened in that time frame was it was possible to us, for us to do that without taking an inordinate amount of debt or beverage. Okay. Just because it was possible didn't mean it was a good thing to do. Okay. Just to set that aside. But when it was impossible, it was, it was less important to, to, you know, to explore those things. So the th- actually the thesis, well, you know, one of the, when we won Wild Blue's business, we became their infrastructure provider and their terminal provider. We were competing against companies like Motorola, right? That, that was, and remember, and this was a time when Motorola was probably considered the most successful wireless and broadband company in the world, right? So, so the way we won is we were really focused on Wild Blue and it was because the value proposition of Wild Blue was we're going to build a seven gigabit satellite when everybody else has one and two gigabit satellites. And they seem to be focused on the same value proposition that we theorized was important. And, and you have to go back, you know, uh, when broadband first appeared, there was a lot of question about what the value proposition was. And from uh, you know, for us, it was just, oh, it's all about cheap bandwidth. I mean, that's the one way to put it. It's about making the cost of bandwidth a lot lower because back then T1s were $1,000 and you could buy a cable modem for, you know, and get a cable modem service for less than $100. And yep, that's the value proposition. It was about low cost bandwidth. Other people were really fixated on, no, broadband has some other value. And so there were, there were programs going on to both terrestrial and otherwise to make, you know, uh, there's frame relay and there was all these other things in the terrestrial world. There was Spaceway and Astrolink in the government, in the, in the satellite world, which were really about sort of managed bandwidth, but not about low cost bandwidth. So one of the things we wanted to learn from Wild Blue was, hey, is this going to be successful? It was successful in the market. And so then we, we but they, their economics really were driven by customer acquisition cost. And we felt, no, that's not right. That might be true, but if you're going back to this escalation of demand, if you don't meet that, your acquisition costs aren't going to matter because you're not going to acquire customers, right? So, so we went round and round with them on that, and we weren't making progress. And they were also their main thing. They were they were selling like gangbusters at at the megabit type speeds, but then they seemed to be very concerned about WiMAX. Going back, this is in the 2005, five, seven timeframe. If you remember WiMAX, 
It was like, why fi on steroids? This, it did, which made no sense. That didn't, uh, WiMAX was sort of an open version of LTE is, is really all it was. And while it was kind of good for some like equipment makers like Google and Cisco, it wasn't good for the carriers because the licensed carriers, because they had all this investment in the telco-based stuff. So LTE, which was really pretty much the same as WiMAX, ended up being the value proposition. But but the the economic performance of the two systems were pretty much the same. We could figure out what the trajectory was. We knew that there'd be a, an opportunity for, for a satellite to compete with that. And it wasn't going to take away the market. So Wild Blue didn't see that. So we went to their distributors and that was Dish and DirecTV and said, hey, you know, if we could do this, would you carry this product? That was really what the question was. Would you distribute this product? And it was kind of a no-brainer. It's like, okay, right now you're selling, you're selling uh, one megabit, you know, broad satellite broadband for $50. Would you sell 10 megabit satellite broadband for $50? Uh, okay, yes, right? And, and because, so when the way the deals work with Wild Blue, and, and this is kind of, we, we'd set this up, is Wild Blue didn't want to own equipment. So we had contractual relationships with DISH and DirecTV. They knew we could perform. They knew that we had built the, the infrastructure. So the only thing that was left was, could we build the satellite and make it work, right? That was, that was it. And so uh, we spent a lot of time on the satellite design. We worked with several satellite manufacturers. We went through the theory, there, there was some new theory of operation. We went through all that, we got patents on it. And boy, everything said it would work. We, we just, we spent like two or three years debating this and researching it. And then we went through these uh, steps where, okay, well, how do you get a license? You know, we needed an FCC license. We needed an orbital slot. So we went through these things. We told investors that we were doing them along the way, not so much because we were committed, but because we wanted the option to do it. Right? That, so all that stuff fell into place. Uh, we had to create some new regulatory uh, environments uh, around getting the spectrum that we wanted. That all was successful and everything just lined up. So it finally came to the time when it was like, okay, are we going to do this or not? And we went through it all with the board. And also, one of the other things that also helped was at the time was the founder of Wild Blue had had left the company. Had kind of you know they had been an entrepreneurial founder. They brought in professional management. He was excited about what we were doing, so we had him uh, speak to our board. We had investment bankers speak to our board just to go through. Here's Here's what the issues are. Here's what we should anticipate. And, and we decided to do it. You know, the thing that was, that turned out to be the unexpected thing was we started January of 2008. We started, so we had, we had $150 million in a bank. We, we, we had really good cash flow. We, we knew it was a $300 million project. We were counting on that cash flow and also on the fact that it, it, we could definitely get raised debt. And then, all capital markets seized up for, for two years, uh, but we still made it through. I mean, that was that was the one thing we didn't count on was the capital markets closing even to, to good you know credit risks. That's a really interesting history lesson. Let's fast forward a little bit because uh, I think people are going to be really interested in in what's going on currently. 
Um, so I think a lot of investors assume that the satellite broadband market is going to be a winner-take-all market. So kind of like how Facebook don- dominates social networks or how Google dominates search, there will be one player who takes the majority of the satellite broadband market. Can you talk about that idea and about why there could potentially be multiple winners over time? Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm a voracious reader of business theory and, uh, and understanding sort of general business dynamics. So these win- the examples that you gave uh, and that, that have turned out to be true in winner-take-all markets all benefit from network effects. And, network eff- and a simple way to state, state network effects are the more customers you have, the more attractive your service is to new customers, right? That 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 is that is the value proposition. So, and all, those almost always depend on multi-sided markets. So, if you think about Google and search, say the more search users they have, the the more attractive they are to advertisers. More attractive they are to advertisers, the more money they get, which means that they can do invest more money in search. And it basically creates this virtuous circle. Think about Uber, you know, the multi-sided markets are drivers and passengers. Now, the Uber one's a little complicated because you've got Lyft in there, which is a very similar one, and the switching costs are almost zero, right, for, for both the drivers and the passengers. So that's a moderating effect. But but the, the, this idea of network effects, which is if I have a million customers, I'm more attractive to the million and first than I am when I have 100 customers. Well, broadband service is the opposite because what you have is a finite inventory of bandwidth, right? And all your customers' concerns are about is how many other people do I have to share my bandwidth with? Even, you know, if you take the best infrastructure in the U.S., and it's probably like, think of cable, you know, good infrastructure, Comcast, Charter, the biggest problem that people have with those networks are in the in the peak busy hours when people have to share their bandwidth with others and the network slows down, right? So in an environment where the demand for bandwidth is constantly growing and the demand is greater than the supply, it's the opposite of network effects. Is if if you get too if you get too many customers, your service slows down. Right. So that is basically that is the balance that, that you always have to go through, which is, well, how much bandwidth should I allocate per subscriber in order to make a value proposition that's good enough to pull customers away from whatever their other alternative is? And so if you, you know, that's why I say it's, it's all math. I mean, what you want to do is you want to figure out, okay, for any particular system, and, and we went through this, you know, to great extent when we were first deciding about uh, doing Viasat 1 compared to WiMAX or LTE, which is, well, how much bandwidth can they have? How much can they have for unit surface area? How many customers could they serve with that? How many people are there? How, you know, What's our value proposition going to be? So we go through that same thing if we're, whether we're competing with another satellite operator for a specific market or whether we're competing with a terrestrial operator. Now, there may be businesses that you can build on top of a transmission service that do have network effects, but the transmission service itself does not have network effects. Does that, does that, does that answer your question about, about that? Yeah, I think it's a very, very articulate way of explaining that market. 
Okay. Uh, and so the other thing that we hear from people is, okay, well, fine, that may be true that there are going to be multiple winners, but uh, the winners are all going to be in the LEO space, which LEOs are uh, low Earth orbit satellites that are being deployed by the thousands right now by companies such as SpaceX. Um, and on the other hand, people like like Viasat have focused more on the geos, which are geostationary satellites that sit at a much higher orbit and are much larger than, than the LEOs. So I, I think within all of that, like there's this LEO versus geo debate, like which one should you be? Um, and then there's also this idea that, you know, someone has to focus on just one. You're either LEO or geo. So maybe talk about, um, you know, how the world could evolve where there's people have hybrid networks or even partner with each other. How, how do you think that plays out over time? Okay. So, so one thing, you know, one, there, there's multiple dimensions that I'm going to try to unpack. Okay. So one question would be, look, if there's multiple orbits, why would you have hybrid? And, and the reason you would have hybrid is, well, if one orbit's better than another, okay, in some dimension of value, right? So, so let's just hold on to that for a second, okay? And, and you can certainly see examples of that. Let's just take terrestrial wireless as an example. Look at terrestrial wireless, you know, there was this huge frenzy around millimeter wave, right? High band, high band wireless, because that's going to deliver gigabit speeds. Well, yep, it does. It does do it. It can deliver gigabit speeds for about 100 feet. Right. I mean, that's so. If you look at if you look at what happened with these, you know, Verizon deployments of you know ultra fast, you don't hear a whole lot about that today, right? But what would happen is, hey, if you were under a lamppost where there was a five G thing, you could sit there with your phone and you could download something at four or five hundred megabits a second. But once you got out of range of that thing, it didn't matter anymore. And it doesn't mean that high band's not valuable. What it means is, oh, really high speed, very short range, low band. Lower speeds, really broad range, mid-band, right? Mid-band will have sort of a compromise between them. And so what you're seeing is people build hybrid networks out of that, and that's spectrum, not orbits, but the issues are really kind of similar. It's propagation range, it's spectrum availability. Those are the things that, that determine different value propositions of the different bands. And there's no reason that somebody needs to be restricted to only one. You're not going to see a carrier say, I'm going to be a low band carrier only, or I'm going to be a high band carrier only. There's clearly benefits to having all of them. So what, you're, what you should be looking for when you think about a multi-orbit strategy or what are the ways in which these different uh, orbits have different value propositions and is there merit in combining them? So there are, you know, the, the, the most obvious really good thing about LEOs is latency because the propagation time is less. The distance is shorter, propagation time is less. So, okay, I'm going to definitely give that a check mark for there's a here's a unique value proposition for LEO. The other one that could be true, depending on your orbits, is polar coverage, okay? Because if you've got a geo at the equator or even a meo at the equator, you can't see the poles. Now, if you have a highly inclined LEO system, you can't see the poles either. So certain LEO orbits are good. So actually, one of the things that's really interesting is if you look at, uh, let's say, what Starlink is doing compared to what OneWeb is doing, you know, OneWeb is purely polar or, or orbiting. Amazon Kuiper is purely inclined orbit. SpaceX has some of each. So in some sense, that's a multi-orbit strategy where the polar satellites actually have way lower utilization in the latitudes where most of the people are, but it does give you polar coverage, 
the inclined orbits have way more, they spend more of their time in places where there's people, but they don't have polar coverage. So even, the, even within LEO, that's still a multi-orbit strategy. The big problems with LEO are the geographic distribution of bandwidth. So if you look, you know, if you look at, a, a, you can't make a satellite at low Earth orbit look like it's staying still in the sky. It's going to constantly go around the Earth. And the, the problem is, you know, it's like 95% of the people live on 5% of the land, which is about, you know, 1% or 2% of the surface of the Earth. So, you know, the, the, the analogy would be if somebody went to Verizon or AT&T and said, wow, we've got a super low latency, really cheap way for you to, to, to set up cell towers. The only thing is you have to distribute them evenly across the entire U.S., they say that's ridiculous. You know, of course they wouldn't do that, right? Because only a small fraction of them would be useful. So that is that's a big problem with Leo. And think, you know, you know, one of the best ways to think about why that's true is is to use inductive reasoning. Okay, so think of it as, and this is exactly what what happens is you build you build say you build a satellite network, and this is what we did. And you look at okay, where's the demand? And what you find is a big dynamic range of demand. So what we would find is like in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas, tons of demand, Montana, Wyoming, way less demand, more rural, but way less people. So what we did with Viasat 1 and Viasat 2 is we put way more, way more bandwidth over those areas, okay? And we could do that without having to put more bandwidth over Wyoming and Montana because the satellite stationary, we could aim it there. So now imagine I've got a LEO system and, and I'm going to do it on a big scale. Hey, I've got tons of bandwidth over, over the United States, tons, tons of demand over the United States or tons of demand over Germany or wherever it is and no demand over the South Pacific Ocean. Well, I want to put up more bandwidth over the US. Well, that satellite, that the next, I put up one more satellite, 1% of that satellite's time is spent over the US. A fraction of a percent is spent over Germany. All the rest is spent over places where I already had excess bandwidth, right? So the increment, the marginal utility of that next satellite is driven by where it's covering, okay? Well, if you do a geosatellite and you find, hey, the my highest demand areas are the places where I want to put all my bandwidth, I can do exactly that, okay? So, so the way we... And then the other, the other really big thing that, that people are coming to grips with now is the scalability of the systems. So one of the things you have to think about is in an environment where per capita demand is escalating by around 30% a year, you have to think of it as, I need 30% more bandwidth next year than this year, okay? How do I get that? Well, you know, one way is say, oh, don't worry, I'm just gonna keep launching more and more satellites. Or the other one is, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put up, I'm gonna make the satellites I do put up have more bandwidth, which is, think you can do both of them. It's not either or, you can do both. The problem that you have with low earth orbit is that the satellites, is that there's a congestion problem. You can only have a certain amount of footprint in space. And the footprint isn't necessarily, don't think of it just as a satellite, you have to think of it as, what is the physical size of that satellite? And it's like 
cross-sectional area or equivalent. You could look at it as equivalent sphere. What's its largest radius and figure out what that sphere is. But that's what determines collision probability. The mass of the satellite determines how big a collision uh, debris field that I create. And, and all that debris, not all of it, almost all of it accumulates. Some of it may be, be sort of uh, dispersed downward and decay in the atmosphere, but the debris that doesn't decay very quickly can be up for decades or centuries. So you end up with, this, with these limits to scale, okay? In geo, you have a couple of advantages. One is the, the volume of space at the, at the altitude is enormously larger, and the protocols for separating the satellites are really well understood. If you remember at, at geosynchronous orbit, all the satellites are going, they're all going really fast, but they're all going at exactly the same speed. That's what keeps them in phase and makes them look like they're, like they are uh, stationary. So their relative speed is essentially zero. Okay. So they they won't collide with each other at Leo. When you start inclining these orbits, you've got things moving at 15,000 miles an hour, and they're all intersecting. They're constantly crossing at actually relatively short distances. And whenever you try to maneuver a satellite to avoid one thing, you're creating more of a chance of it colliding with something else. So the statistics are, and this is, you know, I think that this is the thing that's, that people need to understand is there's a bounded capacity in LEO. And the other issue is that people don't understand quite so much. And it sounds a little bit weird is if you think about, okay, I would, so it's technical again, the way that you get bandwidth on a wireless system is through flux density, which is basically, it's a measure of the electrical energy that you have over an area. So it turns out that the amount of electrical energy you need to generate from a satellite to cover a given area on the ground is exactly the same, no matter what altitude you're at. Okay. And that's because, you know, what, what happens is you just, you, you, at either altitude, you need an antenna aperture that focuses the energy over that area. So the, no electricity goes away. It's only a question of how much it's dispersed. So I need a bigger antenna at geo, but if I can get an antenna geo to make the same size spot on the ground as at Leo, I can use, I use the same amount of electricity. Well, that's important because electricity comes from solar panels and the solar panels are the things that determine that cross-sectional area of the satellite. So, so think of it as, as if I go to Leo and I say, hey, I'm gonna make a satellite that's got twice as much power. It's like I put up twice as many satellites. So whereas at GEO, I've got both dimensions to work with. I can make really big, I can make really high power satellites and I can put up a lot of them. And the more I focus their bandwidth, the more I can put in the same, same, play, same slots. So from a scale, so GEO is far more scalable than LEO. That's the main point. So now you've got some of the ingredients that you can use to say, why would I have a multi-orbit strategy? The reason I'd have a multi-orbit strategy is I want to drive down the cost of bandwidth. I want to put it in specific locations because the dynamic range of demand is very, very wide. And if I'd like low latency, I can use the LEO for that. Then the other thing you'd look at is, okay, well, what's the demand? What, what 
applications demand low latency versus what applications are latency insensitive. And by far the dominant use of the internet is for video, which is not latency dependent, okay? So, you know, people may be sensitive to things like, okay, hey, if I, if I press play on a movie, how quickly does it start? And people can tell the difference between a tenth of a second and a second, right? It's, so, so, okay, what I might want to do, and this is what we, what we do do, is we'd say, okay, hey, let's put the first few seconds of a video through a low latency channel, but we'll put the predominant, you know, most of it through the high latency channel. Or if people are doing channel surfing and they're, you know, they're doing live, hey, every time they change channels, we'll put that over a low latency thing. And we'll put the bulk of it, once they're, they're steady, set on a channel, we'll put that over a higher latency one. But what you'll find is you, you probably only need five-ish percent of your bandwidth to be low latency which works out well because that's going to be a lot more expensive bandwidth because it's the supply is limited. So now well, that's, that's basically the reasoning behind why you would have multi-orbit, why you wouldn't say, I only want, like, just like you wouldn't say, I want all low band or all high band. I wouldn't want all Leo or all geo, but you can figure out, you know, I'm just going to give you an example. If you look at what's going to happen in the 5g world in a, high band, low band, mid band world, what you find is low band is going to cover most of the territory, but high band and mid band is going to carry most of the bandwidth, right? So in this case, it would be sort of the same thing. Low orbit will carry all the low latency stuff. High orbit will probably carry the bulk of the bandwidth. Got it. And so, yeah, you make a, a pretty compelling case why a hybrid network is probably from a consumer's perspective, you know, probably the best, the best, the best solution. Let's move um, to the defense side a little bit because I think it's another part of your business that people maybe don't talk quite enough about. So you have a defense side and then kind of a more commercial side, and these 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 businesses they share common assets and infrastructure, but the end markets are very different. And we talked about this a little bit, but I'm interested about the culture of those things. Do you have, are there two distinct cultures that, that buys out more of a commercial one and more of a defense one? And if so, if there are differences, how do you maintain a cohesive culture company-wide? Yeah. So the, I'll tell you the, the most striking difference between defense and commercial comes in, uh, if you think, I, I like to think about markets, okay? And so what's the most striking thing about a defense uh, company and it's and it's less true for us and I'll tell you this goes to how how we make the cultures compatible but on a, the way the defense industry generally works is the customer whoever you know some acquisition organization says I want to buy X and what they do is they come up with very detailed specifications. I'm going to buy X. I need proposals from multiple contractors. I need to compare them. They all need to propose exactly the same thing. And I'm going to choose the best, either the lowest price or the best value. And then the, the job of the winner is to make X. Okay. And generally those are multi-year programs. And one of the biggest problems the defense industry has is from the time they started building X until the time the project is done, the environment may have changed completely and X isn't really very useful anymore. But it doesn't matter. The customer is going to buy X. And, and that customer, like if you look at congressional oversight, like one of the 
biggest ways that defense acquisition organizations can get in trouble is they say, I want to buy X. And then two years later, they say, oh, no, no, uh, the market's changed. I want to do something else. Well, wait a minute. Your budget's changed. You, know, you, didn't, you didn't know where you're going. I mean, there, there's enormous pressure on the defense acquisition organization to not change and to do exactly what they contracted for. So from an engineering perspective, it's like, oh, hey, this is pretty interesting. I'm going to go work on this project. I know exactly what I'm going to do. Nothing's going to change. I can do that thing. That's all I got to do. Head down, make that thing, whether it's useful or not. Okay. Well, in the in the commercial world, if the market changes, you start you're building something, and if the market changes, no same. <laughs> No sane commercial companies can say, well, hey, I started building this thing and I'm not going to change even if the market's changed. So like, so what you end up with, you can culturally, is these two different environments where on the one hand, you've got engineers that are very focused on building exactly this thing. Customers that are only going to say, nope, you got to do exactly what we said. It's like this insulated bubble. Okay. On the other one, it's like insanity. It's like, hey, what's going on in the market? Am I reading the signals correctly? What are my competitors doing? You know, did somebody come out with something new that's that's going to either make my product this attribute more valuable than that one or change the balance? That is, I would say, that's the most striking thing. And we'll have, uh, in when we have programs that are government run like that, we will have engineers who have had a rough time in a commercial market where things are, you know, constantly evolving. And it's like, you know, it's a very complex environment. They can go to like a government program and say, wow, oh, this is easy. You know, this is like, this is like easy. Okay. And, and it's not the real, they realize one is it's not the real world. And then the other thing that they tend to realize after three or four years is, wow, this is kind of stupid. It's like, hey, I'm building this thing for this environment. The environment's not there anymore. It's like, why am I, you know, it might be easy, but it's not rewarding, right? So, so you can have people go back and forth. The, the, but what does work at our company is this thing I, I kind of alluded to at the beginning, which is there tends to be a big gulf gap between the acquisition organization that has all these oversight requirements and the actual fighting organizations that are getting shot at, right? It's like fighting, if you're getting shot at, you don't really care what the acquisition rules are. You don't care what your congressman thinks. It's like, hey, no, I better do these things or I'm going to get killed or my friends are going to get killed. So I need this, right? So those, think of it when you talk about going through distribution, right? right the things we talked about in the commercial world, those same things exist in the, in the government world. And what's happened, especially you know, after the U.S. being in these conflicts for two decades is the the fighting organizations have, one, they've become very sensitized to the problems in the acquisition world. And fortunately, you know, there become mechanisms where the actual operating organizations can acquire things themselves. So the parts of the defense industry where we really shine the most are in dealing directly with those end users and dealing with the threats that they have. And a lot of that is around information. It's like awareness of what's going around around them and ability to employ all the options that we have. And that, and a lot of that's communications, computation, sensor fusion. Those are the areas that, that we really shine. So you started to go down the path of 
the future of warfare and what your, your, your customers are looking for on that side. I'd love to hear, you know, your thoughts on what the future of warfare looks like and then how, how does Viasat 3, that constellation play into to that strategy? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that, you know, the, the probably one of the most striking things about, about warfare now is pace, is speed. It's like the rate at which things happen. So, you know, you, well, you know, a lot of what we've done since Iraq, the Iraq War was is is really dealing with terrorist organizations. There are, you know, now there's kind of you know these near peer what's called near peer threats. And you look at boy, what did we do? Like in the first Iraq War, we spent months building up for a land invasion, right? I mean, literally months, bringing tons of people and material. So it was like war in slow motion. That's not gonna happen anymore. Everybody understands that. So, so what, what's gonna happen at high speed is really two big things. Number one is figuring out what's happening is, is because, if, and if you look at what's happened, you know, what, what generally happens in all warfare is one of the biggest factors in it is deception it's like you, know, you look at like you know it's like hey the enemy thinks we're going to go there but we're really going to go there how do you create that and usually those impressions are created over long periods of time now they may be created over seconds or minutes and that's all the time you're going to have to decide things so the two what we think are the really really important things are going to be is number one is aggregating enormous amounts of sensor information because especially in, in a cyber Think of it in a cyber world, one of the most important things is you're not going to be able to trust all the sensors. You're going to get conflicting information. So you'll have you know, what we call national assets, which may be space-based or and have very large fields of view, may, have, may give you certain types of information to high fidelity. Then you'll have local assets. You'll have lots of different sensors, all of which you have to integrate to try to figure out what's actually happening. And you'll need to be able to put that all together in you know in, in data centers run ai type algorithms with machine learning algorithms on them identify all the inconsistencies and say okay it, they're doing this this and this but this is what really matters and you're only going to be able to do that by fusing lots and lots of sensor data then once you figure that out really quickly you're going to have to respond and that's going to mean and you're seeing all these things now it's like standoff weapons how can i make weapons platforms effective from hundreds or thousands of miles away how can i convey all of the information that i deduced from all these sensors to the actual shooters and then what you may end up with is the the people that released weapons who may be hundreds or thousands of miles away are going to want organizations that are closer to where the battle is to direct those weapons and in real time to say, hey, I've already done, taken out this target. Now let me go to those targets. Or nope, I didn't take out the target I meant it. Now let's redirect those weapons that came from a long way away. So all that is very, very dependent on communication, right? It's how do I get information into the cloud? How do I aggregate it all at the same place? And then how I do, do I disperse it to all the fighting forces over very large areas? And you're gonna have to be sure that one is that you have the reach to do that. And the other one is that you can, you're robust to countermeasures that, that, that the adversary can't prevent you from connecting all these things because it's the connections among all the things that make you 
effective. So, so Viasat 3 was really, is really suited for that environment. Number one is the security of the ground infrastructure is very high. And, and we do that by having a highly distributed and virtualized system. So in most big satellite networks, there are distinct nodes that if you take those out, you can take out the entire system. There's no such thing in the Biosat 3 network. That's one of the things that's really unique about it. The other thing is that you can, we can reach anywhere in the world. And, and it's pretty much true, even for a geo system for uh, airborne types systems. For things that are on the surface, we have a little bit of gaps in the polar areas where, where we will use multi-orbit. But otherwise we can see pretty much anywhere in the world and you can reach them from safe havens in every part of the world. In each third of the world, there are safe havens that we can reach them from. And those are safe in the sense of physical, cyber, uh, and, and having the computational resources that you need. So the, and then the other really big thing is if you look at the factors that determine jam resistance or resistance to other uh, countermeasure threats, Viasat 3 is, is, is it's better than almost any other defense system. This, because the same things that allow you to handle enormous amounts of traffic allow you to deal with very large uh, countermeasure systems. So th those are the uh, the attractions to it. The other thing, the other thing is that in a in a wartime environment, what you'll find out is okay. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going to be, but wherever I'm just going to pick an example. Aircraft carrier group could be anywhere in a very large you know ocean region, but wherever that is, I'm going to need a ton of bandwidth. All right. So so the idea of being able to again geographically concentrate large amounts of bandwidth in an unpredictable location is, is also gonna be really, really important there. Okay, so those are, those are a lot of the elements that we think are gonna be needed. Now, the, the other one that right now people are concerned about in space is uh, anti-satellite weapons. And so the, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about Viasat 3 is it's a commercial net, it's a commercial satellite system. So we, we think that if you compare it to government systems, it, probably costs about a quarter uh, or less of the cost of what would be considered kind of a exquisite defense satellite system. So not only does it have all these capabilities, but you can proliferate it. You can have a bunch of them and you can, you can have enough so that you can, you can be resilient against space-based attacks as well. There's clearly a lot of interest in space right now overall, right? Like just look at Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic, look at Elon trying to go to go to Mars and the US now has a space force. I'm interested, I mean, you're not gonna play in all of those things, but I'm interested in how Viasat can be positioned to support all of these people who are spending hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars on space assets. Yeah, so you know, one of the things that, that already has become important is communications among all the different space assets. So that, that's one of the most interesting opportunities. And the, communi the communications among the space assets, basically think of it as, okay, I'm, I'll give you one example and the one we just gave uh, is, uh, let's say I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking for something in the ocean and I want to find that. And I need to I need to be able to 
to transfer what I learned to someplace else right now, right? I, I can't, it doesn't help if they find out about it four hours from now or six hours from now or tomorrow. So well, there you've got one space asset that has no ground station in view and needs to get information to another space asset. Okay, so think about you can you, you need to remember think of this as there's in two environments. One is homogeneous, that is, hey, I built a constellation, that constellation can communicate with itself. Okay, fine, I can do whatever I want, custom. But what what really becomes valuable is when a whole bunch of different constellations can communicate with each other. So, right, so for instance, and, and you can see this coming, right? And you know, we've had this for decades. I mean, NASA had something called TDRS, a tracking data relay satellite system, which was a way for some satellites to relay information through this TDRS satellite back to any place else on Earth. So, so there's commercial needs for that. Like one example would be Wildlife Conservancy is concerned about overfishing in areas. If somebody's overfishing in an area, they want to know now so they can interdict and not know tomorrow, right? Same thing you can imagine in a, in a defense environment. So what you want is you might want that for a combination of sensors. You might want radar and video and still imagery and infrared, right? You might want multiple ways to confirm, hey, what I'm seeing is what I'm seeing. I'm not being spoofed. It's not cyber. I've got multiple ways to do that. So you, so this idea of heterogeneous inner satellite connections or an internet in space is kind of kind of big opportunity. So what you know, there, there's a couple of different ways to do it. one. One that some organizations are really excited about is lasers as a way to do that. Or the, one of the big problems with lasers is they have to be very, very stable, and, and they take a while to set up a link whenever you set up a new link. Another way to do it is with really, really high-frequency radio, which is basically what Iridium does or, and a bunch, of, a bunch of government systems that are using radio links. The good thing about that is it's really more like the internet. It's a packet-based system instead of a circuit-based system. I can I can talk I can hop around and talk to any of many different satellites, and I can relay through a bunch of different different nodes. So that's one of the areas that we're really interested in. We did that for Iridium. So, for instance, we did the Iridium intersatellite links. We're doing intersatellite links for the new GPS system for the government. We have a number of other programs around that. So that that space to space network is a pretty exciting opportunity, and you can imagine as people put up, you know, whether it's manned or unmanned probes or sensors or do things in space stations in orbit, what they're going to want is to collect a bunch of information through networks, and that's that's kind of what we're aiming for. It sounds like. Uh, it's just the amount of money being spent there and, and the, the core assets of us that have are like just fit pretty well um, yeah. with, with where the world's going. Um, I'd love to ask a quick question about um, your largest shareholder, um, who is uh, Seth Klarman from Baupost. You know, he's been a large biased shareholder for years. I'm curious, anything that you could t- you've taken away from that relationship, either about capital allocation or about how investors view the companies? Like what what have you gleaned from Seth over the years? Well, the, the main thing uh, is 
you know, he has, he's a value investor, right? I mean, he, what he's looking for is value creation. So everything, you know, when we interact with him, it's oh, okay, what is creating value? And are you, are, what is the company doing to create value as opposed to destroy value? Right. And how much of it is, re how much of it is fundamental and realizable and how much, and what are the things can you distinguish the things that you're trying to do that create the appearance of value versus really create value, right? That, that's what it always comes down to. And, uh, and you know, he has a, a, a time horizon, which is, which is long, but he wants, he wants to know that you're creating value and that you're doing it the most effective way possible. Right. And the other thing, you know, that he's looking for are, okay, well, you know, you know are you, are you like pushing the envelope from a financial and economic perspective, right? There's always, you know, I mean, I, I, his book was about margin of safety, right? So, so it's like, okay, you want to create value, but you don't want to take inordinate risks in doing that, right? So how are you balancing those risks? What risks can you live within, live without, and and try to incorporate the the cost of risk in your value creation, right? That's which is kind of that that that's very appealing to me because I'm so mathematically you know inclined is to try to quantify things, and so you know you, you think about I mean. Uh, gambler's ruin type things and Markov processes, right? That those are the things that you'd want to think about when you're when you're taking risk and trying to create value. And and you know he he you know I would say Baupost, you know they're they're a rational investor. They're very concerned about stock price, but I think you know they're it's always okay. Why doesn't stock price? Why doesn't stock price follow value creation? And if the market, the other questions that they're always asking are, hey, if the if if your stock price is uh, mispriced in the market, why is that? Why do you think that is? Are you doing things to deal with that as well? Right. Th those are the kinds of questions that that they ask, and I think they're all really good ones. Sticking on the idea of communicating with shareholders, so so you're going to be launching three satellites over the next few years. Um, and you've put out this 2025 guidance that includes a doubling of revenue and EBITDA and anticipates a fair amount of customer acceptance of your offering. So you guys talk about three keys to achieving your goals, but I'm interested in how you can be confident enough to put guidance out there, you know, when the, when the satellites are still on the ground. Talk to me a little bit about the elements that are kind of already in place that give you confidence about being able to hit those 2025 numbers. Yeah, so, so the thing... Um... The thing that we're looking at are, are the market, and, and the big thing on the market is uh, let's say, let's say you know, you know, now remember we have multiple different business areas, right? So we we do things like you know Earth observation antennas, we do tactical data links, but a big part of our business, you know, a big part of the growth is going to be in the broadband connectivity space. <laughs> so the thing that we're really looking at is, um, is market value of the bandwidth okay so if we have a transmission resource what is the value of that much transmission in different market segments and in different geographic areas and you can figure that out but right? you can look at it 
today. You, you can say, okay, what are people paying for transmission? And one of the things we found, you know, one of the things we were looking for, like with Viasat 1 and Viasat 2, was did the market, does, how does the market respond to these? And I, I, one of the things that we saw with Viasat 2, Viasat 2 was delayed a little bit. And one of the other things that happened was that eventually AT&T and Verizon decided to match T-Mobile in like all, you know, unlimited plans, which weren't really unlimited. But what that meant was there were way, way more terrestrial customers who could buy bandwidth by the gigabyte and they could see what that gigabyte price was. And what we found was, well, hey, in the places where their gigabyte price was lower than ours, we lost customers. In places where our gigabyte price was better than theirs, we would gain, gain customers, right? And it was, hey, the market's acting rationally. It doesn't do it instantaneously and it doesn't do it on a point perspective. But if, if you can find over a big market, yep, there's a market value to that bandwidth and you can measure it not only by the things you do, but by the things other people do. So that's what we look at is in each of the markets, well, how much, what are people paying for bandwidth? And then what are the trends in those things? And so one of the things that we look at is where are we tr competing with terrestrial, which is, that's challenging, but it's, it's doable under the circumstances I described. And then the other one is where are we competing with other satellite services? And in the other satellite services, really we look at two things. One is we've had plenty of times where other satellite operators have either misunderstood what their own costs are or, for, or because they want to penetrate a market will underprice the bandwidth in that market, right? And so, okay, you know, a customer might make a rational decision to choose somebody else if they're, if they're pricing lower than us. But the other thing you have to look at is, well, how much of that bandwidth do they have? Because if they sell more than they have, their value proposition is destroyed, right? Because they're not delivering what they said at the price they said they would. So, so going back to all this, it's like, okay, we can, met, we can look at what the market price is for bandwidth. We can look at what the other mechanisms are for creating bandwidth in the locations that we can create it. We can estimate what those prices are. Demand's not going away. It's only really a question of what is the market value of the bandwidth in that place, in that application. That's what the issue is because the, there's enormous amounts of demand. It's really only what are the substitutes. So that's, that's what we're really focused on is understanding the alternatives in each of these markets. Is that... Is that I mean, it's like, hey, you know, you've got, the, you know, the demand for the thing that you're making is virtually inexhaustible as long as you're at the right price. So what you need to do is be able to anticipate the price of the bandwidth in each of these markets. And that's, yeah, I, turned, out, that's turned out to work. No, it's turned out yeah. to work in all of our markets. And it, it makes complete sense, right? At the end, if the customer understands what the value proposition is and if, and they, and customers can be tricked. I mean, that's happened in the in-flight. You can see like there are a number of in-flight companies that have gone bankrupt because they misunderstood the market, mispriced their bandwidth, didn't deliver on the value proposition. I mean, sometimes it takes a while, but the markets always understand eventually, am I getting what, you know, how much am I getting for how much money? So I mean that that's an interesting way of describing what sounds to me like mostly the the consumer broadband market. Um, and as we go to our last question, maybe you'll you'll talk about this a little bit. But it sounds to me like um, 
you know, you what you're building with Biosat 3 and connectivity for the military may not be so com- you know, there may not be so many other competitors that can 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 often oh. compete with that. So maybe yeah. maybe talk a little bit about that and then any other aspects of this company that you feel like are maybe misunderstood or underappreciated by investors or people who are just approaching it for the first time. Yeah. So you know on the basically the, the way to look at it is um you know, and when you talk about defense, it's like in every one of our markets, there are, you know, there's some alternative, okay? There's some alternative, right? Like, for instance, if you're out in the middle, if you're in an oil rig in the middle of the ocean and you're trying to, you're trying to analyze the, you know, what's coming back and your drilling activities, you might end up having to archive all the data and send hard drives back on a helicopter, but that's the alternative, right? So, so, so what we're trying to do is figure out what is the value of our alternative relative to all other alternatives for all of the vertical and geographic markets. And if we're selling to the military, there's a way different value to our bandwidth if it's used at a training camp in the U.S. versus if it's used in the middle of the Pacific or off the coast of North Korea, right? So, so that's, that's really what the challenge is, is to understand what the value of that bandwidth is. And then the other is if you want to build long-term relationships is to, you know, treat customers fairly, right? That's what I would say. You don't want to, you don't want to be uh, overly greedy, right? That hasn't worked. That hasn't worked well. And we have long relationships, but that that's the point about sort of how we estimate the market is like, is the market saturated and it's not, and then, okay, what are the alternatives? And, and we can, what we want is agility so that in the event that, you know, hey, there's a 9-11 or there's a pandemic that grounds airplanes. Can we move our bandwidth into other markets where there's still demand? That's one of the rather really big things that we're looking for is that optionality and resilience. But the thing, you know, to go to your, uh, and so, so the point I was making is that approach of trying to understand what the market value is and all these different vertical and geographic categories applies across all of our markets, not just not just consumer. Uh, the the other uh, the other point about you know what what I think is the most misunderstood is how mathematically predictable <laughs> what we do is right that that it's uh, it's you know it's not like we sit around and dream things up and you know it's it's like there is there is a math foundation behind all of it right you can figure out. I mean, you you can read the specifications for 4G and 5G, and you can how much spectrum is available, and you can figure out, oh, this is what they can do, right? This is how much bandwidth they can have. This is how many customers they can have. You can do the same thing with a MEO satellite or a LEO satellite. If you if you really understand the mechanisms behind beamforming and modems and channel capacity, you know, and and radio transmission, all this stuff is really, really predictable. And I I think one of the things that's a little bit interesting is, you know, there there are many investors and hedge funds that are super quantified about the way they invest. But what we think is, well, if you go to the fundamentals, what you really want to be is super quantified about the things you invest in. (laughs) It's like, what are the fundamentals behind those? And, And it's very, you know, we kind of like the fact that this is complicated because 
I think we're really rigorous about it. And I, and I think it's worked. It's worked well. We're really pretty clear about, hey, you know, bandwidth is about economics. And so here's the, here's the constraints that, that govern the economics that you can get under any orbit or under any spectrum, right? Uh, and we haven't even talked about spectrum as an example, where you have the same things that apply to spectrum trade-offs in terrestrial apply to spectrum trade-offs in satellite. And so th there's other dimensions of value that you can take advantage of. So that's the, the, the one thing, you know, the one thing that we are, that we would wish for, you know, is, is just more quantitative discussions about what makes our business work. And, and you know, and a little, you know, sort of more in-depth analysis around that. Yeah, I think there's this field of, of dreams perception where there's this like hugely speculative idea where, yeah, we're building this thing and just, you know, just maybe people will come. Um, and, and your point is that there's a lot more rigor behind that. Yeah. Yep. And and there are, you know, there the other the other thing I think that I'm gonna tell you. One one thing that's really interesting is that there's a saying. It's Mark Andreessen. Mark Andreessen uh, repeats it, but he he credits it to uh, Jim Clark, who is the Netscape. You know, basically he worked with that Netscape, and he said, you know, there's only two business strategies: bundling and unbundling, and 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 re that's really insightful. I mean, it, it, that's actually true. And what it says is, I mean, I'm just it's like. Vertical integration versus horizontal integration. You can think of like bundling, like Netflix is unbundling video from transmission, right? It's like all your all your entertainment came from the cable company, which was a transmission company. It didn't used to be that way, right? So now Netflix is unbundled transmission and content, as an example, right? And you can have there's lots of examples where that's true. But what it, what it really says is, oh, there's two strategies. There's what you're doing and the opposite of what you're doing, right? That, that's what it says. And that you, that you really shouldn't do the same thing over and over again. And the other thing that's really, really interesting is in, in an environment like that, both strategies are playing out at the same time, right? People are doing bundling strategies at the same time other people are doing unbundling strategies. And they're both going to find markets. And so the thing, you know, that's the other thing that I, I think is, what makes companies successful over the long term is agility. And sometimes it's doing the opposite of what they started with. And so we're, that's how we think, right? We're always looking for that. And I, and I think, I actually think that's a strength, right? To, to be able to take that perspective and be that adaptable. Well, Mark, we could probably have you on for a few hours because I, you know, there are probably 15 questions I didn't get to, but uh, this has been incredible. I mean, we've we've jumped around and we've we 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 dug deep into the satellite economics and the the technology, but also the different sides of the company and the culture. So I think you know I think people have a holistic sense of of how you've built this company. So thank you so much for this time. It's, it's been a, a really enjoyable conversation. Sure, same here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at co-street.com capital.com with their comments or suggestions. 
Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.